Heavenly Father, we thank you that through no strength or power of our own, but only through the cross, the finished work of Jesus Christ, we can claim those words, that truth is our own. Through our God, we will do valiantly because you are stronger than all. You're stronger than all the things that we've set before you this morning. You're in charge of all the uncertainty that we face and that frightens us. Father, thank you that you are Lord of this world. You are Lord of creation. You are Lord of the church. You're Lord of our lives. You're Lord of the following moments here as we open your word. Father, and we seek your face in it. You are so powerful. You are so wonderful. You're so compassionate that you'll speak to us in the deep and the secret places of our hearts. And right now, Father, we we invite you with all of our hearts to do that now. To, as always, through the indwelling presence of your Holy Spirit, to guide us in truth, to guard us from error, to deliver us from apathy, and to help us see Jesus. Oh God, may we see Jesus clearly this morning in your word. May we see Jesus only this morning in your word. And when we leave in a little while, Father, may it be refreshed and rejoicing because we sat at the feet of the one who loved us enough to lay his life down and take it up again in victory. The name of Jesus, in which all of God's people said together, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And as you are taking your seats, as always, let's dismiss the boys and girls for Children's Church. They can begin making their way out that back door. As I would invite you, and I hope that by now your spirit, your soul is refreshed in the Lord this morning through prayer, through worship, through communion, through all the rest. And I invite you to turn in your Bible, if you would with me, please, to Mark chapter 11. I want you to meet me again this morning one more time in Mark chapter 11 as we continue working our way now, not just through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ as a whole, but as we continue working our way, progressing through the final week of Jesus' earthly life, uh, the week we call Holy Week, the week that culminates in his death and his resurrection. If you read ahead, if you're one of those people who looks at the bulletin and looks ahead at at what next week's passage is, I initially said in last week's bulletin we were going to cover a whole lot more ground than we were today. And then the Lord, as he likes to do, redirected me, rattled my plan, shook things up and said, nope, we're doing just this much. And I said, really, Lord? And he said, really? And, And so here we are. We're going to look at the final seven verses of Mark chapter 11. Or if you have your Bible open and in front of you, I'll begin reading now. Mark 11, verse 27, down through verse 33, where this is what the Word of God says. It says, They, that again is Jesus and the twelve disciples, came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, By what authority... Are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? Now, they specifically have in mind the cleansing of the temple that he just did the day before, but certainly they have much more than that in mind as well. That's just where it culminated. Verse 29, And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's his question. Was the baptism of John, John the Baptist, from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why didn't you believe him? But shall we say from men? For they were afraid of the people. For everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. So answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. 
You know, I've never seen the hit TV show Game of Thrones, and from everything I've heard about it, it's better for my sanctification that I haven't, and probably the same would go for you as well. But as I was looking at this passage this week, I thought that title, that phrase, a Game of Thrones, almost perfectly describes what we see happening in this passage of Scripture in Mark's Gospel before us this morning. Because at the point of time where we're resuming the story here today, the cross is now 72 hours off, more or less. 72 hours off. And at this point in time, the ongoing power struggle, a struggle for authority, a struggle for supremacy, a struggle for the allegiance, if not the affection of the common people, the men and women and children of Israel, that had been instigated three years earlier by the Jewish religious leaders and fueled and amplified them time, by them time and time again ever since. That struggle for power right here, whether you notice it or not, is now wide open, out in the open for everyone to see. Every Everyone in those days could see the battle that is taking place. And as we look at it this morning, we can see the battle now clearly as well. And because that's so, because what's happening here is a struggle for power, it's a struggle for authority, for who is going to occupy the throne, uh, the the allegiance, and, and maybe, as I said, the affection of the people of Israel. Because that's so, what I want to do this morning in this passage, and I want to get right to it right from the start, is draw our attention to three points of tension that are lurking within that struggle. There are at least three, there's a lot of ways we could look at this story, but what I believe the Lord would have us zero in on it this morning are three points of tension tension within the power struggle, three tensions that the presence of Jesus Christ, and here's why it's important that we see them, three points of tension that the presence of Jesus Christ will always eventually expose when he is in the conversation, when he is in the mix. He will always eventually expose three specific tensions. We want to look at them, of course, number one, to see what they are, and then secondly, and and importantly for us this morning, see why they matter and what we can learn about them as we continue to be people who seek to follow Jesus Christ. Three points of tension Jesus will always expose. He'll always bring to light and force us to reckon with, the first of which is this. It is the tension, number one, between authority and autonomy. The first tension that Jesus, or one of the three tensions, Jesus will always eventually expose when he's part of the conversation, when he's in the mix, is a tension between authority and autonomy. Because you see, authority, we haven't talked about this really much as we've worked our way through Mark's gospel, but it's still so. Authority is a major theme throughout the story that Mark has been telling going all the way back to chapter 1. It's subtle, but it's there and it keeps coming up. In fact, if you were to go all the way back to Mark chapter 1, to the first sermon Jesus ever uh, preached, the first time he ever stepped onto the public stage, what you would see in Mark 1.22 is that that was the first thing, authority, that people noticed about him when he spoke. Mark 1.22 says this, it says, In Capernaum, on the Sabbath, Jesus, immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue... And he began to teach. This is the inauguration of his ministry. And they were amazed. The people, the common people, were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching as one having authority and not as the scribes, the teachers they were used to, who'd hem and haw, beat around the bush. No, Jesus spoke with authority. 
And you know, authority is a wonderful thing as as long as you're the one who has it, right? When you've got the power, when you've got authority, when you've got influence over other people, authority is just a wonderful thing to have. It's very different when we're on the other side of the equation, but when you've got it, you want to hold on to it, and that's precisely why this scene begins to unfold, because if you look now at verse 27, Mark 11, 27, here's what you see. You see that as he was walking in the temple, we would assume this is the day after he cleansed it, It says, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Now, what you need to know about this bunch is that they were a contingent. They were a band of emissaries, probably not all of them, but they belonged to a group in those days that was called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a council of 70 men chaired by the high priest. It was made up of priests and scribes and elders and Pharisees, basically a whole bunch of guys with a lot of religious and and along with that political influence. And they had, over the course of time, this 70-member committee called the Sanhedrin, they had established themselves more or less as Israel's self-appointed quality control officers over all of Israel's religious and social life. They had all the power. They had all the influence. They had all, when they came down the street, people stepped back and said, man, we don't want to cross these guys because they are watching to see if we're dotting the I's and crossing our T's and living the way that they have interpreted the law says we ought to live. So they send a contingent, probably not, as I said, the whole group, but some of them, to Jesus. And, and what we need to understand or remember, as the case may be, is that in doing so, in coming to Jesus in this way, their intentions and motives that were anything but pure, anything uh, but upright. Because if you look and go back to verse 18 from last week's passage, here's what you see. That after Jesus cleansed the temple, had said, hey, this is, this is supposed to be a house for prayer, not, not for all the commerce and stuff you've got going on here. It says in verse 18, the chief priests and the scribes, they heard what Jesus did, and they began seeking how to destroy him. Okay, that's the most recent bit of insight we've gotten about these guys. Now they're coming to Jesus, questioning his authority. Because here's the thing. Up till now, over the course of three years, they've been unable to refute the things he was saying. They'd been unable to replicate the the miracles and the wonders and the signs that he was doing. So being unable to to refute it, unable to to replicate it, uh, to, to do anything of that sort, the things he was doing, here they pivot. They're trying a new last ditch tactic. And it is not to question the things he's doing, but to question, look at the verse, his authority to do them. What right he had to do them. Verse 28, they began saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? And here's what we really need to see about that. We're going to understand what's happening in this scene. See, what these guys, these ruling religious authorities, found so threatening about Jesus wasn't ultimately, in point of fact, his authority. Now, their authority was being questioned. Their authority was being whittled away by the things he was doing. But the real tension they felt, as I suggested a moment ago, wasn't so much about authority as it was about autonomy. The fact that they had all the power, they had the right, they'd given themselves the right to call all the shots, to make all the decisions, to direct everybody's life. It was all about autonomy. To be autonomous means ain't nobody can tell me what I'm supposed to do. And question me in any way. They had a deep-seated desire, these guys did, to be self-governing. Because that's the way it had always been. And no one had ever dared to question them. Their autonomy was being threatened. Their right to be their own bosses. 
And if you know your Bible, you know that that's a tension that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man, Adam and Eve, Satan at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Remember what Satan did, the first thing out of his mouth when he comes to them in the form of a serpent. What does he ask him? Did God really say? Did he, and, and here's what he's implying. Does God really have the right to tell you what to do? You don't want people telling you what to do. You don't want anybody telling you the way you should live your life, the things you can and can't do, drawing lines and saying, don't cross them. Did God really say, and, and, and the implication, does he have the right to say that? To tell you how to live your life? So this tension has existed since the dawn of time, since the beginning of humanity. And what I said to you or suggest to you a moment ago is, is that that is a tension Jesus always eventually exposes in our lives the lives of believers and unbelievers alike. Because think about it. Let's just be honest for a moment, okay? This is not raise your hand. You don't have to confess to anything. But don't we all deep down know it's true who really sits on the throne of our lives? If there's a throne in our heart who occupies more often than not that throne, I know in my life it's, it's me. And I have a hunch that in your life it's you who sits on the throne, calling the shots, making the decisions, deciding the direction because that's what we want. We want to be able to orchestrate all the moves to control the outcomes to get what we want. Isn't it true? We all want to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it, where we want to do it, with whom we want to do it, and we don't want anybody else's informed opinion telling us that might be a bad idea. We want to be on the throne. We don't like to say that. We don't like it about ourselves. But even as believers, we know that it's true. I have coronated myself king of my life. You have coronated yourself queen of your empire. That's what we do. Because as the old song says, everybody wants to rule the world. That's what it's all about. And that's why when Jesus shows up offering to be our savior, or when even after we have trusted him as such, we've given our lives to him there's an area where we realize and he shows us we've not yet yielded. What happens? Well, our flesh, my flesh, it rises up to resist, right? As, as Paul Tripp says, my inner lawyer steps up in my defense. And it says what the dudes say here in verse 28. They began saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the authority to, to say that, to tell me that, that I can't do this or I ought to go there? It's a tension that's very real between his authority my, your, uh, our uh, autonomy. And it's a tension that's only amplified by the, the next several verses, what we see in the next several verses, which is this, that, that a second tension Jesus will always expose when he steps into the situation, when he's acknowledged in the conversation or the confrontation is this. Not only is there a tension between authority and autonomy, there's also a very real tension between fear and following. Between fear and following. Because you see, Jesus wasn't being evasive. He really wasn't. When in verses 29 and 30, I want you to look at these again in your Bible, when he, Jesus, responded to them, to these ruling religious leaders, and said, I will ask you one question, and you answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's his question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? You answer me. Now, it looks like to us, Jesus is trying to, to avoid the question. Master politician, right? Uh, respond to your question with a question of my own. But that's not what Jesus was doing at all. 
No, Jesus was simply engaging in here what was a common technique among rabbis, among teachers in those days, was to debate by asking one another questions. So while we might look at this and be troubled and think, well, it looks like Jesus is trying to get out of it, I'd urge you not to be troubled at all if you feel that way, because they weren't. They didn't object and say, you don't have the right to do that. No, they began to engage because that's how such things were reasoned out. Now, the reason in doing so Jesus cites John the Baptist is because in those days, John's been dead a while, but even in those days, everyone had, and we'll see this a little later on in the passage, everyone in Israel had more or less considered John to be a legitimate prophet. They may have liked him or disliked him. They may have agreed with him, not agreed with him, but everybody looked at the guy and goes, he's anointed by God. There's something going on there that makes him different from the rest of us. So when Jesus, look at verse 30 again, when he asks them, was the baptism of John, and by that he means the whole ministry, everything he taught, everything John was all about, was it from heaven or from men? Jesus' clear implication was this. Guys, whatever you decide about him, whatever you conclude about him applies to me, there's your answer. Wherever his authority came from is where mine comes from as well. And we may not get that. That may not make a lot of sense to us, and that's okay. Uh, The important thing is it made sense to them. They understood what Jesus wanted to know. And they understood the, the dots he was trying to connect. And we know that because of the discussion which ensued, which exposed the tension they were feeling. Look at verses 31 and 32. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, Now, if we say from heaven, he'll say, Then why didn't you believe him? But should we say from men? Well, they were afraid of the people. For everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Now, it's subtle, but do you see the common thread between the two options? What it was that so troubled them about whether they said it's from God or from men? There's a singular common thread between them, and it was this. What will people think? What are they going to think of us? How will their opinion change? What will they conclude about us? And here's what they knew. They knew that whatever we decide, because of where it ultimately and very quickly leads, will expose to all of them, we're not nearly so spiritual as we claim to be. We don't have our act together anywhere close to the way we have portrayed that we do over decades and decades of time. In fact, that's the whole reason they just hadn't eliminated him outright already. They were afraid of the people. They knew he's too popular. We can't just walk in, arrest him, and haul him away because the people are with him by and large. And they'll rise up in his defense. And you know why that is? You know why this is so? Here's the principle. What you fear, listen, what you fear determines who you follow. Any and every area of life, what you fear determines who you will follow. Turn it around. Who you follow, what you follow is the fruit of whoever or whatever in life you most fear. Now, that may be a terror fear. That may be an awe or reverence fear. It may be something on the spectrum of fear in between. But the bottom line is this. What you fear determines who you follow. And as such, the way you live your life. It's all part of this spiritual game of thrones. Who's in charge? And what will it require of me? Whatever or whoever truly rules our lives will shape the way we live. 
I mean, just think about it from Scripture. There's some great examples. Think about the classic story. Many of you know it of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3, right? Three young guys are taken off to Babylon. They're living in a foreign land. King Nebuchadnezzar, most powerful man on the face of the earth, says, you bow down and worship me. That's the abbreviated version of the story. But that was the point. You bow down and worship me. You call me Lord. Everybody in the land says yes. Three guys say no, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because they know there's a higher power. They know there is an almighty God in heaven. So what does he do? He throws him. Nebuchadnezzar, most powerful man on the face of the earth, throws him into a fiery furnace. Jesus shows up. They are delivered. Come out on the other side. They're not burned. They don't smell like smoke. It's a miracle, and Nebuchadnezzar realizes it. And here's what he says. Listen to his words. Daniel chapter 3. Upon seeing God work, Nebuchadnezzar said this, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, who feared him more than they feared me. And I'm the most powerful guy in the world. He continues. He says, They violated the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except him. You see the principle? What you fear determines who you follow and therefore the way you live. Another great example, not nearly as well known, although it should be, the story of the Hebrew midwives, heroic Hebrew midwives in Exodus chapter 1. We'll go way back to that, give you the, the real thumbnail sketch. The deal is this. The story opens, Exodus chapter 1, the children of Israel are slaves in Egypt, and they are multiplying rapidly. And, and, and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, a thousand years earlier, he's the most powerful man on the face of the earth before Nebuchadnezzar. And he sees what's happening, and he sees what's coming. And he issues an order to the Hebrew midwives. He says, don't let those little Hebrew baby boys live. When they're born, you make sure they die. Because we're going to put an end to this right now. Most powerful man on the face of the earth, talking to Hebrew slave midwives. Don't let the babies live. They're not having it. They're not going to play. Because in Exodus chapter 1, I urge you, go back and read the story this week. It's phenomenal. It says... But the Hebrew midwives feared God, and they did not do as the most powerful man on the planet commanded them. And because, here's the thing, because the midwives feared God, he blessed them. They feared God more than they feared man, and it changed it. By the way, this is just as free, but it's really, really cool. You go back and read that story, you'll learn something. Those midwives are mentioned in like three verses. They are also named in those verses. You can read the whole book of Exodus, and, and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, most powerful man on the planet, he dominates the first 15 chapters. We're never even told his name. Why? Because God sees things differently than we do. And he wants to know, who does your heart most fear? Who do you really love? Because who you love and who you fear is going to change the way you live. Here's the plain fact. Here's what I'm driving at. Everybody answers to somebody. Everybody answers to somebody. We have all enthroned someone or something as the primary authority in our lives, as the one we fear, and as such it determines the way we live and who we follow and the things we do. So I would urge you, I would urge us, even right now, to ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart. Say, Lord, who's on the throne in my life? Who or what do I most fear? 
So how do I know? Well, ask him. He's really good at pointing these things out. One of the practical ways you can look and say, well, how am I living my life? What am I living for? What am I living in light of? What am I living to accomplish? That'll give me some indication. But ultimately, we have to say, Holy Spirit, who dwells within me as a follower of Jesus Christ, who's on my throne? Who do I most want to please? Whose approval matters most to me? And you know what? I believe with all my heart, he will put his finger of mercy upon it. It'll sting, probably, but it's a, a sorrow, a sting that leads to repentance and restoration. You've got a throne. Who's on it? And how are you living your life as a believer as a result? So the first tension Jesus always exposes, and these are all wrapped up together, of course, but it's between his authority and our autonomy. The second tension Jesus exposes, right along with it, is the tension that exists between fear and following. And then that culminates in the final verse of the passage, verse 33, in the tension that brings it all kind of down to, to street level for us, and it is this. The third and final tension is a tension between resistance and relationship. The tension that exists between resistance and relationship. Because when verse 33 says, look at it again in your Bible, verse 33 says that answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. You know what they really meant, right? They were saying, we pass, right? We're not going to answer one way. We're not going to answer the other. We are, we're going to plead the Fifth Amendment on the grounds that anything we say is going to end our reign of terror, right? It's going to incriminate us. It's going to show us for who we really are. So we're not going to answer you because we can't. In other words, what we need to see here, and this is so true, so often it's so true. It wasn't a matter for them of ignorance that they didn't know the answer. It was a matter of resistance. They did know the answer. But, but anything they did answer, anything they said other than we passed, what was it going to do? It was going to almost immediately topple their entire self-constructed kingdom. The throne would come crashing down on them. Resistance. You know what the really tragic thing is about that? It's not that in doing so they avoided a trap. That's what it looks like. It looks like Jesus is trying to, and they probably felt trapped, trying to trap them. They did not, in doing so, avoid a trap. You know what they did? They missed an opportunity. And that's not a semantics game. That's not putting a smiley face on an ugly situation. They missed an opportunity. An opportunity to surrender to Jesus Christ. An opportunity to confess their sin. To agree with God where they had gone wrong and be saved. To stop resisting and enter into, what's the other R word? Enter into a relationship. That's what it was all about. But their stubborn-hearted, stiff-necked, fearful resistance shut the opportunity down. Answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, and can I just say, this is my little bit of commentary on the last part of verse 33. I don't think Jesus said it in anger. I don't think he said it in, in a vindictive or, or a condescending way. I think he said it through a broken heart. I think he probably said it with tears in his eyes. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these. Because you won't let me. And I know what it's going to cost you. Now, we like the pointing finger of judgment of Jesus. I think this is the broken heart of Jesus. Because Jesus will save anybody who will repent. 
Jesus desires that all men and women and young people be saved. And that tension between resistance and relationship, if you think about it, it really does apply to every dimension of following the Son. It is, yes, firstly a salvation issue, but it's also a discipleship, day-by-day walking with the Lord issue. Jesus would say it himself a couple of nights later, right before he's betrayed and sent to the cross. John 14, 21. I'm going to put it on the screen so you can see it as I read it because I want you to absorb these words. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them. That is, they listen and they don't resist, they obey. He, she is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest. Some versions say, I will reveal. Some versions say, I will disclose. They're all good. Myself to him. Do you see the connection between resistance and relationship that when we stop resisting, we have and we enjoy and we embrace the relationship? As I said a moment ago, the first and most important step is always And and this is the one that I said the leaders are resisting here is to repent and give Jesus the throne in the first place to say, yes, I will repent and believe in you. To give him the throne in our lives, to enter into the relationship. But for those of us who have believed, who've already come to that point in life, what follows after that, and this is what John 14, 21 is all about, because remember, he's talking to disciples, right? Judas is gone, this is the 11 faithful. What follows after that are a million and one other opportunities throughout the rest of our earthly lives to do what? To forsake our autonomy. To to fear God alone. To consciously, willingly, albeit sometimes reluctantly, if we're honest, yield more of my kingdom, more of my throne, more of my will, more of I want it my way. And you all better respect it to him. Because here's what Jesus is saying. He's implying it in Mark 11. He's proclaiming it in John 14. Every time we yield, the relationship gets stronger. Every time we yield, the intimacy goes deeper. It's just the way it works. The one who believes in me, loves me, keeps my commandments, follows my word. I will manifest myself to him. I will reveal myself to her. We'll grow tight, close. We walk through life together. Bottom line, what I'm saying is this. Resisting Christ's authority stifles the relationship. Yielding to Christ's authority enriches it. We've got to recognize the tension. That every time we resist, what we're resisting is relationship. In Matthew 28, after he'd risen from the dead, Jesus said this, you know it. He said, all what has been given to me, all authority has been given to me up in heaven, down here on earth, it's all mine. That's what he said after rising from the dead. Well, John, the apostle John in Revelation chapter 4 tells us that at the end of history, the end of time, What Jesus said there will be seen by all. John gives us a glimpse of it in Revelation 4. You don't need to turn there, but I encourage you again to look at it this week. Because what John says is this, at the end of time, what everyone's going to see is a throne standing in heaven 
And there's going to be one, John says, sitting on the throne to whom everyone around that throne gives glory and honor and praise and thanks and dominion to him, the one who lives forever and ever. And that's like a sample. It gets so much better than that. But it's an awesome scene. It's a fearsome scene. And it is, if you think about it, if you take it at face value, which we are intended to do, read it and see that heaven is this way, Jesus on a throne, all this glory around him, it is also, in one sense, as you look at it, a hopelessly inapproachable scene because of the glory that's all around except for one thing. Except for what we're told in Hebrews chapter 4. That because he went to the cross and died in our place and rose from the dead, Jesus, the one who sits on that throne, you remember what he says? Hebrews 4.16, that we can draw near with confidence to the what? To the throne. Everybody say the throne. Can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in every time of need. He's on the throne. Everybody's going to see he's on the throne. Guess what? This morning, right now, you can draw near to the throne. Draw near to Christ. And because of that, each and every one of us, wherever we are this morning in life, we are presented with a choice to respond or to resist. And the only way we can work it out is by doing what I said a moment ago, asking the Holy Spirit, search my heart. Pray like David prayed, search me, O God, and know me. Try me and test me. See if there's any wicked way in me. Because why wouldn't I want to be closer to you? Why wouldn't I want to draw nearer to you? Why would I not want more of, of your life manifested and living out through me? Why would I want that? Search me, O oh God. Who's on the throne? And I give it to you again. Is there anywhere or anything in which you're resisting his authority? Is there, there any way that you are ruled by the fear of what other people think? You're afraid to surrender autonomy. If so, learn from the failure of the religious leaders of Israel. Learn from their failure and acknowledge, as today's big idea says, and here it is, it's all about saying yes to Jesus, always. It is always all about saying yes to Jesus. Yes, I will call you Savior Yes, you are, in fact, Lord of that and that and that and that and that in my life, too. And the more he reveals, the more he asks us to yield for his glory, for our good, for the relationship. And so that the glory of God in Jesus Christ, Christ in us, the hope of glory, will shine brilliantly through. Father, we all know, and it's not because I said so this morning, we all know there's a throne in our heart and in our lives there is at any given moment, at every given moment, somebody's orchestrating the moves, somebody's calling the shots, somebody's insisting on their way. And Lord, so much more often than it should be, I know in my life it is me. Father, thank you that you know that about us and you sent Jesus anyway. Thank you that you know that about us and, and saved us and, and you knew it would be like that and that you don't give up on us anyway that you keep coming back and offering us more of yourself, more, of, more, more of, of your power in our lives, more of intimacy with your son, Jesus Christ, 
More opportunities for the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Spirit, to be manifested in and through us so that others will see Christ in us, the hope of glory, and want to know who he is too. Father, it really is in that sense all about Jesus. It's all about saying yes to him. Father, would you in your mercy, your gentle, sweet mercy, put your finger on the places in our lives where we're clinging to control, where we're clinging to authority. We're saying, Lord, you can have all the rest, but but I'm not going to let you look at that. And Father, to realize that when you bring that pressure to bear in our lives, it's not because you're ashamed of us, it's because you love us. And you know it'll hurt us. And that the plans you have for us are so much greater. Father, as always, take the things of truth that have been spoken throughout this morning together and seal them to our hearts. Let all the rest fade away so that we leave with eyes and hearts fixed on Jesus alone, in whose name we pray. Amen.